0: Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I am Matthew Goreglia, PhD candidate in history at the University of Connecticut, and a producer of the Why We Argue podcast. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project of the University of Connecticut, which explores how we balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness and intellectual humility. The series which is made possible by the John Templeton Foundation, features interviews with scholars on the current state of public discourse and democracy. Today's guest is Ian James Kidd, an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Nottingham. Ian's research focuses on epistemology, epistemic vices, corruption, and illness. I met up with Ian to discuss his work at a workshop on political polarization and epistemic arrogance, hosted by the University of Connecticut, and the Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, Ian, thank you for joining me. Morning, Matt. Thank you. Um, So I guess I'd like to start by asking, so what brings you to a workshop on political polarization
1: and epistemic arrogance? Well, partly the topicality of the theme. There's a lot of interest in the last few years in epistemic vices and arrogance, dogmatism. Partly that's because these things are of abiding interest but also they're of obvious contemporary significance um, within modern political culture. So this this event is timely, I think. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and you you work a lot about with vice epistemology. Would you mind talking a little bit about what that
1: is? Sure, Um, it's a particular sensitivity that many philosophers have that it's extremely difficult to think clearly and properly. Everybody thinks, argues, and discusses. Well, not everybody thinks clearly. Not everybody thinks well. Not everyone discusses in properly procedural ways. And the idea that vice-pismologists have is that one of the features that helps people to think and argue and discuss clearly and accurately will be certain virtues, excellences of character. So the open-minded person, the intellectually flexible person, the person who's open to different perspectives. The idea is that people with these characteristics will be good people to debate with. They have excellences of the mind, virtues of the mind that allow them to think well. Now, that's the positive side of the story. But, of course, the obvious fact is that many people don't have the virtues of the mind, they'll have the vices of the mind. The arrogant person, the dogmatic person, the person who can't admit when they're wrong, the person who cannot see other people's point of view. And this is what vice epistemologists study, the vices of the mind. What are they? How do they develop? How do they spoil inquiry and debate? And crucially, of course, for this workshop, what can we do about them? So what can
0: we do about them? Have you developed some kind of idea about how to reach people who have
1: a certain amount of vice in their thinking? Well, I, th- I think it's, there are two ways to think about um, kind of the amelioration of the vices. I mean, there are kind of local, short-scale situational responses. So, for example, if a person is being very arrogant in discussion or debate, the important thing to do is, of course, to intervene, to cut them off, if they're overruling people and dismissing their views, to call those views back to the table. So there are kind of small situational responses. You can combat incidences of vice. So when, if people are being arrogant and dogmatic, you try to call them out, you try to intervene but that's only going to work in certain cases because often the vices are deeply entrenched in people's characters for that. You need a second type of response. You need long scale, um, kind of structural change to the person's character. Those ones can be more difficult because a person's character is a product of well, really their entire lifetime. So I think that if you really want to correct the vices, it's not enough just to intervene when people perform vicious acts, you'd have to change their socialization, the modes of education they're experiencing. And larger features of the social and political environment. So often I think the vices develop and are kept in place by larger features of the world that we're living in.
0: So, I mean, obviously, this is a great time to be studying uh, epistemic yes, vice and arrogance. But uh, do you think that kind of the current political moment is bringing out people's innate vices? Or do you think um, it's telling people that vice is okay? Or what, what's happening right now that it seems like
1: it's become such a, a more larger problem that's a great question and my, my particular interest in epistemic vices is in, is in a phenomenon I call corruption so something is corrupting if it tends to encourage the development the exercise of certain vices and the epistemic vices it's epistemic corruption I'm interested in I mean it does seem from the psychologists that people have certain natural dispositions um, towards certain types of vicious behavior so for example um, dismissing certain options and not considering them is very cognitively efficient so I think that to a degree, there is a natural disposition to the vices. And I think that often the vices will also develop because typically our societies and educational systems are not well designed to combat vice. So this broader features of the environment can encourage and nourish them. And I think corruption is always a feature of a society. But it does also seem to me that contemporary political cultures tend to be highly corrupting. So a culture can be more or less corrupting. And features that would make a society very corrupting would include... Strongly polarized intellectual climate where positions are rigidly divided into for and against with no gray area in between. Um, It would also be corrupting if there are exemplars of the vices. So, if people in positions of political power and influence are themselves arrogant and dogmatic, partly because that would show that um, it's possible for vicious people to flourish and to do very well, to attain to the highest offices in the land. It would also show people that it's to a degree okay to be vicious. Um, I mean, we know from studies in childhood education that people are highly emulative of the behaviours around them. People try to adapt and conform. And if you have a shifting of norms where it's okay to be arrogant, dogmatic, closed-minded, are not just okay but a good thing insofar as you'll flourish and achieve your goals, they would be corrupting features of a society. And a lot of what I'm trying to do in my work is to identify corrupting conditions for different vices. Mm. Given what we know about the structure of, say, epistemic arrogance as a vice, what sorts of material social conditions would encourage this in people? And what, I mean, have you have you discovered
0: any? Have you kind of fingered some specific conditions?
1: Or There do seem to be certain correlations between, for example, certain types of privilege. Hmm. So there are different conceptions of epistemic vice, and this is something the vice epistemologists are interested in. What is this thing called arrogance? But well, there are certain general features of all the models of arrogance. So one feature of an arrogant person is that they have a tendency to illicitly assume certain privileges. For example, epistemic privileges include the privilege to set the terms of a debate, to define the meanings of terms, um, the privilege of having the last word on a matter. These are certain types of privilege. And we know that people are more likely to assume their entitlement to privileges if they've always enjoyed them. So if you belong to a socially or an epistemically privileged group, so for example, if you're a member of a racial majority in your society, you will naturally acquire more than your fair share of epistemic privileges and if that's the case, then you, you spend an entire lifetime gathering privileges. And so you become used to them. You become very comfortable with them. And so you naturally become defensive when people try to challenge your privileges. And it's that defensiveness that I think is a, one of the components of arrogance. So in that case, growing up as a member of a social, racial, gender, or epistemic majority as a privileged person is a strong corruptor for arrogance. And it's interesting. Um and so now you're coming from the UK and I assume you follow
0: politics in the US a bit as well maybe alas, yes yeah um so I mean I don't I don't want to put you on the spot but but do you see any like particular events or people or intellectual strains within political discourse that are are particularly insidious corruptors
1: Yes alas <laughs> I mean it's an interesting question of how certain broad types of political tendency relate to these kind of corrupting factors arrogance so Think of a a current feature of British and American political culture, which is a sort of populism. Um, The idea that um, we ought to follow the will of the people, however that is defined and understood, that we ought to reject uh, the tyranny of expertise, Mm. the idea that people are entitled to their views without substantive challenge by facts, by evidence, by moral constraints. I think that populism functions as a corruptive arrogance. So... Thinking of the example from the UK, which is a Brexit debate. It's a famous remark made by our, one of our leading pro Brexit politicians that people have had enough of experts. Yeah. Now, that sort of anti expertism fuels a sort of populism because it, in effect, it amounts to a surrender of the idea of epistemic authority that we don't want to be told what to do by economists, legal experts. We should follow the will of the people, however untutored, unreflective, and dangerous it would be for them. And that fuels arrogance because an arrogant person doesn't have a sense that they are. Um, under anyone else's epistemic authority, they won't defer. They don't think there's anyone they ought to follow. And that's, that will encourage arrogant behavior. Well, if I think that, say, leaving the European Union will be good for us and that's what we want, that's what we should do. Mm-hmm. And if experts disagree, that's just another set of perspectives to consider. But it, 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 that sort of populism amounts, I think, to a surrender of the I- very idea of epistemic authority. Mm. And if you lose a sense of epistemic authority, that is a massive corruptor for arrogance.
0: And do you, I mean? Do you see this backlash against authority and expertise as coming from somewhere? Is there like uh, a deep history of arrogance um, in the kind of regime of expertise that had its heyday during the Cold War, and is now we're seeing a backlash to that? Or where where did this come from in some ways?
1: That's a very interesting question. So I think there are always. Fluxes within communities So changes in their conceptions of what the epistemic authorities are Of what counts as epistemic authority And there is this modern rhetoric um, Of Telling people to Come up with their own views To come up to their own judgments, um, Shape their own opinions To consult experts but not to follow them And that type of epistemic populism, that seems to me to be fairly recent. Mm. And I suppose the sociologists would say this is correlated to major changes politically and culturally over the course of the 20th century. Decline in the authority of religion, for example, in many developed world societies, increasing complexity of societies, increased rate of social change, major transformations like the end of the Cold War, um, closure of imperialism, emergence of new political orders without nation states, In that condition of epistemic uncertainty, when your epistemic authorities are changing and transforming, I think that generates uncertainties about epistemic authority, which can help arrogance develop. Hmm. I mean, if there's a natural desire for epistemic authority, that could manifest itself in different ways, as a sort of epistemic um, reserve where you defer judgment and don't want to act, or as a sort of populism where you just cling to any authority you find or to what seems a very common phenomenon these days, which is a sort of tribalism. You identify with your tribe, your group, and you go along with what they think. And I think those conditions of uncertainties put strain on the virtues, because what virtues typically need if they're to do their work is a certain background set of stable conditions. For example, it's very easy to be epistemically humble if there is an accepted sense of who the epistemic authorities are, what the limits of their authority are, and what epistemically humble conduct looks like. But in conditions of uncertainty, the virtues become massively fragile. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it makes me wonder if this is complicated by the sense that for so long, what has defined um, legitimate authority uh, and legitimate ways of knowing about things have been defined by Western powers, by imperialism, by a kind of uh, a patriarchy and a, and a a monopoly on knowledge by kind of Western universities. Yes. And I mean, is, so is the idea of arrogance challenged when we challenge expertise from a, a position on the, on the left where we say, well, we also need to value different ways of understanding and learning that are not Western or not imperial in their origins?
1: Yes, because well, that, that would be what we might call a sort of a deep humility. Mm. So I think arrogance and humility can function at very different levels. There are interpersonal levels, institutional, but I'm interested in particular types of what I call deep epistemic vices. And these would be forms of, for example, epistemic arrogance that are built into the structure of certain societies. Um, they're broad conceptions of the nature of reality, of how society is organized. So these would be vices that are manifested by cultures. And I think that one can make the claim that there are certain types of epistemic arrogance built into certain broad cultural movements. So things like Eurocentrism, for example, would be a good example of this. The idea that everything that is epistemically good and progressive and productive finds its origins in European societies and the countries, say United States, which have been broadly shaped by them. So we see this playing out in philosophy, for example. Um, A lot of calls these days for a diversification of philosophy, intellectual and demographic, so the greater inclusion of say the indian chinese japanese mesoamerican philosophical traditions now there's a great rhetoric there of arrogance of the arrogant exclusion of those traditions or of their marginalization and i think that there is a certain legitimate sense in which there is a form of arrogance built into a lot of those discourses mm. and it manifests itself in different ways the simple rejection exclusion of those traditions the insistence that anything good in those traditions um is only valuable insofar as it confirms certain Western values and convictions, or the idea that we don't need to engage with them in order to do good philosophy, that we can do perfectly good ethics using our own, as it were, indigenous Western philosophical resources. There is no need to read Confucius or the Buddha or whatever. Now, in that case, you have large-scale arrogance built into a culture, a tradition, a heritage, and one within which I think many people are swept along Now, the idea of this sort of cultural arrogance is not so well represented in vice epistemology. The focus is on agents. But I think that cultures, traditions, ways of life can themselves be arrogant or dogmatic or close minded. And that makes it very, very difficult to challenge them, because then what you have to think about is not just agents and institutions and their interactions, but broader cultural tendencies, movements, isms on a large scale, Eurocentrism, cultural chauvinism and so on.
0: Uh, and so what, what other research interests do you have? I see you kind of have a, a, a
1: diverse CV in terms of research interests. What else are you, are you looking at right now? Um, well, a lot of the work is on the virtues and the vices in a kind of epistemic context. But at the moment, I'm doing a lot of work in the philosophy of illness. And mm. that's not a, a major area of philosophy. Um, there's only a small handful of people in philosophy working on illness. but There's a huge array of people in other areas of philosophy. And my main interest at the moment is in Um, a phenomenon I call pathophobia. So this refers to forms of negative treatment of ill persons, negative ways of thinking about them, talking about them, perceiving them. And my suggestion is that um, there's a set of pathophobic vices and failings that people often demonstrate towards ill people, um, vices of aversion, callousness, insensitivity, and that we need to take seriously this phenomena. And that's an extension of this kind of vice-theoretic thinking I have. It's... Wherever you find human beings and human institutions, you find vices and failings mm. built in and often very entrenched. And that a crucial aim for philosophy is to try to understand, analyze, and ameliorate these.
0: That's so interesting because, I mean, in the discipline I'm in, in history, we have a kind of long tradition, especially in cultural history, of uh, interested in disability studies and history of the body. Yes. Um, but this is the first time I've ever heard. Um, kind of living with chronic illness or with pain or disability framed it as an epistemological problem. Yes. And I think
1: that's incredibly interesting. Well, a lot of the work I've been doing in recent years on the borders of vice epistemology and philosophy of illness has been on epistemic injustice and illness. Mm. So certain wrongs perpetrated against ill people as knowers. So if you read illness narratives, which is what I'm spending much of my time doing, there are constant epistemically toned complaints Um, ill persons complaining that they're not listened to, that they're not taken seriously, that their doctors don't ask the right questions, that they can't make themselves understood, that the forms of medical epistemic practice that they are participants in don't track certain of their concerns and values. And my claim there with colleagues, um, including think Harvey Carell's philosophy of illness, is that these are forms of epistemic injustice. And that part of what's um, particularly awful about illness is that it subjects you to whole variety of moral and epistemic failings and vices and problems and that seems to be to be built into the lived experience of ill persons and as you mentioned disability theorists are way ahead of uh, many philosophers in theorizing this.
0: Is there, I mean to some extent do you think that there's a, a linguistic problem as well that um, because the people who are, are producers of knowledge about illness are not themselves maybe ill that we have a, a, a language problem where language often fails to capture the kind
1: of things that are being expressed by ill people. Yes, that that seems to me a primary form or source of these epistemic injustices, because so many of our socially authoritative conceptions of the nature of illness are defined according to a certain type of scientific model. It's very called a biomedical or naturalistic model, where disease is primarily construed in terms of biological dysfunctions. Organs, bodily systems have functions. When they can no longer serve those functions, one is in a state of disease. Now, the claim is that this way of thinking about disease lends an awful lot of epistemic authority onto medical science. It privileges biomedical concepts, languages, terminologies, and so on. Now, that's fine to a degree, because thinking about illness and disease in those terms has a lot of good, but biological dysfunction doesn't exhaust the lived experience of illness. So if you think of illness as the lived experience of biological dysfunction, it's very clear there's much more to illness than bodily breakdowns. It involves transformations of your relationship to your body, of your sense of the future, how you relate to other people. And it's very clear from those illness pathographies that much of what troubles and disturbs people about their illnesses is these wider moral, social and existential changes. Now, most of those aren't reflected in biomedical terminologies. The interest is very much in bodily dysfunction. And that means that whole other areas of what it's like to be ill are not represented in the epistemically and socially authoritative systems of healthcare. For that, you have to go elsewhere. Mm. And the problem is that when you try to go elsewhere to find other epistemic resources for coping with and understanding your illness, that's difficult because they're not built into healthcare systems, or they're not taken seriously, or they're marginalized or derogated. And that seems to me to be something that philosophers really need to get involved in. We need a sufficiently rich conception of the lived experiences of illness. And then to go to the healthcare systems and say, if there are things you're not including here about illness, this is something that you need to do.
0: That's fascinating because I, I think so much it brings to mind the, the pain scale that they use in hospitals, which are just progressively irritated looking faces. Yes. And you have to wonder that there, there must be some better way to articulate yes. pain than that yes. and how difficult that must be for somebody who lives with chronic pain or chronic illness they have to articulate their feelings based on a scale of, you know, progressively unhappier looking smiling faces.
1: Yes. this seems to be one of the main ways that many of these epistemic injustices are generated in uh, context of illness is that there's a certain range of uh, what I call expressive restrictions, restrictions Mm -hmm. on the range of ways that you can express what strikes you as important dimensions of experience of illness. So uh, if your doctor is following a standard diagnostic protocol, they will ask you a series of questions that relate to their epistemic concerns and primarily be concerning bodily dysfunctions. But that means that certain things that patients might want to express about how suddenly the world feels to them strange and cold or how they now feel betrayed by their body. These are things which is often very important for ill people to express. But they're not at all reflected in diagnostic practices. They might be politely noted, but they won't play any role in the epistemic procedures. Or if there's an insistence that medically relevant information must be expressed in calm procedural as it were objective terms which of course makes sense given the privileging of biomedical epistemologies well that's not going to work for many ill people because often the expressive styles they naturally default to and find most useful will tend to be emotive anecdotal expressive
0: Mm.
1: and there are nice accounts by doctors who express their frustration that patients as it were just say strange things Um, i read one recently a physician complaining that they have a, a regular cancer patient and he says and all she'll talk about is her relationship with her daughter and how her body never feels like it's her body what does she want me to do about this mm. and i think that's an important question what does she want to do about it well obviously she wants you to acknowledge that dimension of the lived experience of cancer and the, the reason that she keeps repeating this is because it's important to what she's experiencing and how she's understanding her cancer And the frustration, I take it, of both the physician and the patient there is that that information is not allowed to play a role in medical epistemic practice. Hmm.
0: And so ultimately, do you see um, policy solutions to the the kind of uh, epistemic work you're doing?
1: Yes, because I think what's ultimately going to be needed here to generate a more epistemically just system for engaging and experiencing with ill persons is going to be fundamental reforms at the least of medical training so uh, the majority of medical training course focuses upon the sciences, physiology, biochemistry, and so on. And there is some inclusion these days, particularly in the U.S., of what's as it called cultural literacy, interpersonal mm. care, what people would call good bedside manner. But nothing as substantive as you would need to really engage with the phenomenology of the experience of illness. Um, for that, you would need sustained studies of illness narratives, of certain types of ethics and moral philosophy, narrative sensitivity, and there are also movements, um, for example, the development of narrative medicine that's trying to do this. But that work still is slow going. I mean, it's encouraging to see just how many new movements there are within medicine that I think can be interpreted as movements for epistemic justice. So participatory healthcare, narrative medicine, person-centered healthcare, holistic medicine. There is a movement in this direction. And I think if those movements can be developed in the appropriate ways, they will be vehicles for epistemic justice for ill persons. Wow.
0: Well, Ian, thank you very much for sitting down with me and enjoy the workshop. Great pleasure. Thank you. Man. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at at public humility. That's one word, public humility. Thank you so much. And bye for now.